0: Welcome back once more. Now, tonight we wrap up our five-part series on the Islamic State called the ISIS Files. Now, for the past week, we have been unveiling what ISIS is, where ISIS uh, ideology stems from, and this by unpacking the theological perspectives and the geopolitical context in Iraq and Syria. Mostly we have received a positive response from listeners, so a big shukran to all our listeners for their comments and questions, some of them which we have posed to our expert, well, that's Sheikh uh, Fakhruddin U- Uwaisi. So for the next hour, Shafiq Morton will be recapping some of the key points and uh, we'll be answering your questions in the final installment of the ISIS files. Let's listen. The ISIS files. Imagining the Islamic State. A special Voice of the Cape production. Assalamu alaikum. And a uh, very good evening to you. Welcome to the final in our series The ISIS files. Imagining the Islamic State. I'm Shafiq Morton. Our special guest in the fifth and final in this series is Sheikh Fakhridin Owasi of the Sunni Ulama Council of South Africa, also a lecturer at IPSA and the Medina Institute. Sheikh, assalamu alaykum.
1: Wa alaykum assalam wa wa taala wa barakatuh.
0: What we're going to be doing today in today's program is we're going to be going through all the questions that you have sent to us via SMS during the whole series sheik let's have a look at the first SMS that uh, we're going to deal with. It says, Assalamu alaykum. is it wrong to be against fellow Muslims as you were in the program?
1: Alhamdulillah, salam ala sayyidina rasulillah wa ala alihi wa Yeah, this is a question uh, somebody asked me as well the other day, that uh, isn't it wrong for us as Muslims to be condemning other Muslims or talking about other Muslims and so on? And ISIS is a Muslim group, you know, who claim to be fighting for Islam. So why should we criticize them? The first thing I want to say regarding that is that the very reason we are criticizing ISIS is because they are killing Muslims. So we are just speaking about ISIS. We are not killing ISIS members. We don't call for that as well. We are just warning the Ummah about this group for the very reason that this group is out there murdering and killing Muslims. Till now ISIS has killed more than 10,000 people. About 99% of them are Muslims, and the 1% which is non-Muslim is also journalists and uh, humanitarian workers who went to those countries to help the people. So this is an organization uh, who's only killing Muslims, fighting Muslims, making takfir of Muslims, You know, calling whoever doesn't agree with them from the ummah as kafir. So this is a destructive movement, it's a cancerous movement. So uh, it is our duty as ulama and as people concerned about the ummah's well-being that we should warn the ummah about this. And in our case, this becomes even more imperative for the very reason that unfortunately we've had uh, people from South Africa, young men from our own community, uh, going and joining ISIS, which basically means that the ISIS propaganda uh, is very strong. Uh, that people are willing to leave their mothers and fathers and their homes and go join this group in killing people and so on so uh, which has brought us into into bad light you know in, in south africa in the media with the government and it's of great concern to us so therefore uh, it is necessary on uh, the ulama to warn the people about uh, this trend because it is no more something that's happening far away uh, it is it is affecting us right here at home uh, as well So uh, it is our duty, therefore, to warn the Ummah about uh, groups uh, like that.
0: Sheikh, uh, another SMS says, um, Dear Sheikh, how dare you say that the Wahhabis are part of the Hawarij. The Salafi ulama themselves are also against ISIS. Your comment.
1: Uh yes last uh in the previous episode with myself we spoke about the historical development of the Khawarij movement the Khawarij basically to remind the viewers listeners uh, uh were a movement who uh, were extremely pious inward you know outwardly speaking they were ultra pious you know salah and very long beards and you know they don't wear nice clothes and uh, they had all these things uh, yet uh, they used to consider anybody who commits a sin to be a kafir and they consider anybody who doesn't agree with them as a kafir, including the sahaba. So it's not only the Shia, for example, who make takfir of some of the sahaba. The khawarij also used to make takfir of the sahaba and used to kill many sahaba. I mean, they killed Imam Ali radiallahu an as well. <clears throat> so we talked about how the khawarij mentality developed over the centuries and has always been there within Islam. And I mentioned the Wahhabi movement of Sheikh Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, as an offshoot of the Khawarij mentality. Now, last week already, when I spoke about this, I have already given examples, you know, uh, concrete examples of how Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab's modus operandi, the way he operated, was exactly like that of the Khawarij. And these, doc- these things uh, are not only in the books of his opponents. The ulama of the time, the, from the Hanafis and the Shafiis, the Malikis, the Hanbalis, all of them considered his group to be Khawarij. But not only the people, who, the ulama who were opposed to him, even the ulama who uh, supported him and who were Wahhabis themselves, they themselves in their books uh, document the murders and the murderous campaigns that Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab used to do. I gave you an example, I'm going to repeat it very quickly. There was a, a, an Amir in Najd, in, 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 in the Central Arabian region where the Wahhabis came from, uh, who joined Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. Afterwards, he left the movement because he felt these people are killing Muslims. So Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab declared him a murtad and a kafir. I mean, how does somebody become a murtad just because they don't want to be part of their group anymore? And then Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab sent two assassins to go and kill this man while he was performing salah. So they went to the Masjid on the Jum'ah, this Amir, Usman bin Muammar, led the Salah, the Amir of Al-Uyayna, after leading the Jum'ah Salah, he was sitting on his musalla, just finished his Salah, and the two Wahhabis jumped on him and killed him with their daggers. Then they took the news to Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, who then ordered the people to make Salah to Shukur, and, and said that if we get a chance, we'll do it again. Uh, these documents, uh, these things are documented in the books of Wahhabi history. Uh, muhammad bin Abdul is well known. Uh, I, I, you know, um, I compiled all this information in one document uh, where he used to declare all the towns that are not under his control as Darul Kufur and Darul Harb, which means you can go and kill everybody in that and take all these women and take all their possessions. And not only was this theory, this was done. There were tens of thousands of Muslims that were killed by Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab and his army at that time. This is documented in the books of Wahhabi history. Uh, Like the very famous book, I will refer you, is the Tariq ibn Ghannam. Ibn Ghannam, his father was a follower of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab and he himself was a Wahhabi. He wrote a book called the Tariq Najd. You can check that book. It's filled with murderous details. The other book is Anwan Al-Majd Fi Tariq Najd, also written by Ibn Bishr, who was one of the fanatical followers of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab. He compiled all the murderous campaigns. In fact, in, these, in that book, he refers to Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab's army as the Muslimin, and he refers to the soldiers of the Ottoman Empire as the Mushrikin, And he refers to all the battles of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab against the Khilafah, against the Ottoman Empire as Ghazwa. And he, uh, he refers, uh, you know, uh, to their dead as shaheeds and the uh, other people, the dead of the Ottoman Empire as kafirs and murtads. So these documents are all there. Yes, what about the Salafi scholars today? Yes, uh, today uh, in Saudi Arabia, of course, the Saudi government is opposed to ISIS. So uh, the, the ulama of the government there are all opposed to ISIS uh, because of the government pressure. But uh, what you do see is that there are many other Wahhabi ulama in Saudi Arabia who are openly support- supporting ISIS, and they are of course undercover, and they are, you know, uh, the, some of them are arrested as well. They are in prisons and stuff. So you do find uh, a lot of sympathy for ISIS there within the Wahhabi Salafi camp, because at the end of the day. Um, ISIS is a Wahhabi Salafi organization You know, they are they are Wahab Salafis If you ask an ISIS member What is your Aqeedah, they'll tell you we are Salafis And uh, they, they will tell you that We are the real Salafis Because we are following the way of Sheikh Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab Of fighting and killing Whoever is opposed to us For example, they are fighting the Shia and killing them uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab's son Led a campaign During his father's lifetime Against the Shia in Karbala and this is documented in the books I mentioned. They attacked Karbala. After they attacked Karbala, they murdered every single human being in that place, more than 2,000 people. And they demolished the tomb of Imam al Hussein Radiyallahu An. And uh, they proudly say that, wala, wala karama, and in other words, we have no regrets in doing that. So is, isn't ISIS then following the footsteps of Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Wahab? So if there are Wahhabi Salafi brothers today who are opposed to ISIS, then they should also have the guts to oppose Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Wahab. Then they should say that unfortunately Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Wahab was also doing similar things and we disassociate ourselves from his actions. But otherwise, uh, we're going to have a hypocritical situation where you condemn ISIS, but you glorify the same people ISIS is following.
0: And if you just tuned in, you're listening to the fifth and final of the series, The ISIS Files, Imagining the Islamic State. Our special guest is Sheikh Fakhruddin Owasi. We're taking a quick break. Back. The ISIS files. files, Imagining the Islamic State, a special Voice of the Cape production. production. Welcome back to The ISIS Files, Imagining the Islamic State. This is the fifth and final in our series. Our special guest is Sheikh Fakhruddin Owasi, who is from the Sunni Ulama Council of South Africa. He's also a lecturer at IPSA, Islamic Peace College, South Africa, and of course, the Medina Institute. We are currently going through questions that you sent to us during the course of the programs via SMS. Sheikh, there's another SMS that came through. It's a very simple one. It says,
1: Is Baghdadi a Jew? Uh, You know, Muslims have a problem which is blaming everything on a Jew, you know So everything is Jewish I've heard people tell me Sufism was started by a Jew Uh, Shiaism was started by a Jew Uh, Shias will tell you Sunnism was started by a Jew And uh, every group, you know, just accuses the other group of coming from a Jew And I think this is really a very very wrong mentality that we have Just blaming everything on a Jew Uh, I think we're giving them too much power uh you know uh we, we need to understand that there are problems within our own ranks, you know, so if a husband and a wife fight, don't blame it on a Jew, it's a problem that you guys have between a misunderstanding that you guys have between yourselves so uh there are problems within the Ummah and situations from which these groups come out uh you know whether it is Sunni, Shia Salafi, whatever all these groups come out of a certain context, and it's not about a Jew or a Christian. Uh, There are things that happen and whatever trends that are there which create these things. And uh, as far as Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is concerned, uh, the ISIS Khalifa, the guy who they believe rules over all the Muslims of the world, uh, which is a big joke, uh, he's not a Jew, you know, and I say this for sure, I can tell you 100% that he's not a Jew, uh, because he is a person uh, who is from Iraq. His real name is not Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He is neither Abu Bakr nor is he from Baghdad. His name is, um, you know, Ibrahim Awad al-Badri. Uh, his, uh, the interesting thing is his followers call him a Sayyid. They say he's a Husseini Sayyid. Uh, his opponents call him a Jew. So he's neither a Sayyid, because the ulama have uh, disclaimed his claims to be a Sayyid, neither is he a Jew. He is an Iraqi Muslim who comes from a Sunni background who uh, was studying in Baghdad University under some ulama, and some of those ulama, I mean, they are still alive, and they, and they have even told us that uh, he was a very bad student as well, a mediocre student, in fact. They said he wasn't a good student as well. And um, they mentioned that uh, at in University, he became a Wahhabi Salafi, you know, and then he be, after that he joined the jihadi takfiri movements of Osama bin Laden, al Qaeda, and so on, so from that time onwards obviously is part of these groups in- initially ISIS was only known as uh Islamiya Islamiyah fil Iraq initially ISIS was known as the Islamic State of Iraq and this group has been around from 2008 it's been the al-Qaeda's branch in Iraq and then uh when they had a branch in Syria the Islamic State in Syria and they were fighting Assad and these guys in Iraq were fighting the Iraqi regime which is basically Shia dominated um Eventually uh, they control territories which are next to each other so they decided to amalgamate which is basically to come together and call it the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Then later on they decided why do we limit it to Iraq and Syria let's just call it the Islamic State. You know which for us is the imaginary Islamic State because it's there's not, nothing Islamic about it. Um, so yeah but as I say that he's not a Jew at the same time I also I'm not ruling out the fact that uh, definitely the Israeli Mossad uh, has a role to play in this. Uh, Because, you know, not only in this, whatever happens in the Middle East, uh, the Israeli Mossad is involved in those things. And one of the main uh, foreign policy, I mean, rules of uh, the Mossad is to keep the Arabs and the Muslims around Israel especially, keep them in constant conflict. So as long as they are fighting each other, whether it's Sunni, Shia, uh, Arab, Kurdish, uh, secularist, Islamist, uh, whatever countries fighting each other, Iraq versus Iran, uh, Saudi versus Yemen, uh, Libyans, uh, Yemen, Egypt. So uh, their policy is to keep Muslim countries fighting each other because as long as they are all fighting each other, then Israel remains safe and sound from any danger. So I don't rule out the fact that the Israeli Mossad has some role to play, uh, but... ISIS is not a creation of the Israeli Mossad and neither is Ibrahim, you know, a Baghdadi a Jew. Sheikh,
0: yeah, let's get on to the next question. This one um, says here, why isn't ISIS fighting the Zionists? Why fight people that can't defend themselves?
1: Yeah, well, that's a question you should ask ISIS, you know, not me. you know. But uh, why are they not fighting the Zionists? Um, look, I mean, to be fair, they claim that they need to first get rid of all the corrupt Muslim governments before they can fight the the, the Zionists. But uh, I don't really buy that argument because they were saying we need to remove Bashar al-Assad because all the Mujahideen who are in Syria, so they can fight Israel. Uh, Bashar is a barrier to that. But now Bashar is busy fighting the rebels, so why don't the Mujahideen take this opportunity to fight the Israelis, you know? Uh, they can do suicide bombings everywhere. So why don't they attack Israel? I'm just asking. So I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think they will go in that direction. I think they also know that if they actually get involved in a fight with Israel, uh, they will lose big time, you know, and all the forces that be will be unleashed against them. So I think they are just power hungry right now, and they just want to control as much area as they can control. And I actually uh, think that they admire Israel, you know, um, and because I think what they want to create there in the Middle East is a Muslim Israel. So uh, the ISIS territories become the Muslim equivalent of Israel because what does Israel say? The Zionists say Israel is the holy land and the chosen land for all the Jews and all the Jews of the world should migrate to Israel. And the land of Israel, which is Palestine, only belongs to the Jews and nobody else has a right to live there. Now, ISIS is doing exactly the same thing. They've created a country which they believe only Muslims have a right to live in and Muslims who agree with them. All the Christian population, whatever population, even Muslims who don't agree with them, Shias, whatever, Kurds, everybody has to leave that. And all Muslims around the world should migrate to their territory. So they're doing exactly the same thing. They are taking over the homes of Christians that left that place or were thrown out of that, that place and then giving it to Muslims who come from South Africa or Tunisia. So they, they are basically behaving just like the Israelis. So um, it's kind of like a Muslim version of Israel.
0: Sheikh, the next question: Why do we have groups in South Africa like the ADL who in the beginning supported ISIS, but now with all the negativity, they try to distance and them, distance themselves. Yet they did collect money at different mosques for jihadists in Syria. Uh,
1: Look, uh, I cannot answer on behalf of the ADL. I mean, uh, they have members who can speak for themselves, so I cannot, you know, uh, give any answer about them. Um, But why would they support uh, ISIS in the beginning, and later on they said they don't support? Look, I, I can't comment, I mean, definitely on that. All I can say is that I have a concern generally about how we deal uh, with the Shia issue here in South Africa. Um, The ADL is a group, you know, Sunnah Defense League, uh, they call themselves, uh, is a group that deals with how to basically uh, combat Shiaism in South Africa. Now, I agree that Shiaism, um, you know, or the spread of Shiaism in our communities is an issue. Not only Shiaism, any ideology, I mean, we are Sunni, Shafi'i, uh, you know, that's our Sufi, you know, background here in Cape Town. So if any group spreads within uh, a new group, uh, ideology spreads in our community, whether it is Shiaism, Salafism, Ahmadism, whateverism, uh, if it's spreading, uh, it is of concern to us. Firstly, uh, as ulama, obviously from an aqeedah point of view. And secondly, as community, uh, as a community, it's a problem because it can divide families. It divides families, it divides communities, and so on. So it does concern us. So I agree that the Shiaism is an issue in South Africa uh, uh, for Muslims. But how do we deal with this issue? This is where I disagree uh, with groups like the ADL and some of the other groups as well. Because um, what I feel that what these groups are sometimes doing, uh, maybe unknowingly, you know, I, I don't. Many of the brothers are sincere and stuff. But uh, what well, I feel so what some of these groups are doing is. Rather than just refute the the wrong beliefs of the Shia, and the Shias have wrong beliefs, you know, uh, uh, there are many beliefs they had that are incompatible with what we believe with the Halsunna al-Jama'ah. But I think rather than refuting the beliefs of the Shia, I think what some of these groups are doing is creating a hate the Shia campaign. And that is unacceptable. Because I don't believe we should have a hate the Shia campaign or hate any group campaign. If you're going to have a campaign called hate the Salafis campaign, I'm against that. You know, uh, if you're going to have a campaign called "Hate the Ahmadis" campaign, I'm against that. If you're going to have a cam- uh, campaign called "Hate uh, the Jews" campaign, I'm against that. Yeah, we disagree with the Christians on on many be- on the the main beliefs of Christianity, but we don't go on a campaign in which we tell everybody to hate the Christians, attack the Christians. No, we cannot and we don't. That's not the Deen. So we have to differentiate between refuting the beliefs of the Shia. And between creating a a hate the Shia campaign, where we attack the Shia as a people. And that is wrong, because people are free to believe whatever they want. If somebody wants to become a Shia, we can debate with the guy, we can show him where he is wrong, whatever. But after that, he is free to follow what he wants. You cannot now demonize the guy and, uh, you know, preach hate against the guy for that reason. That's one thing. The other problem I have uh, personally with these groups, and many ulama share this, is that uh, it's also uh, they've brought the discussion to the level of the masses, uh, youngsters who don't really know the historical backgrounds of these divisions. So it becomes very vulgar, and there's a lot of swearing, there's a lot of cursing, there's a lot of vulgar language used, uh, you know, and uh, from both sides, I mean, Shia, Sunni, um, there's a lot of slandering and hate, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and end of the day it becomes a paranoia. So you have a young man who's whole, you know, uh, free time is used, uh, being paranoid about the Shias or whoever. So we have to be careful, you know, we have to have priorities as well. Uh, So yes, in summary, uh, deal uh, with the Shia, you know, problem, I mean, the ulama are there, I mean, they they, they, they are the rightful people to deal with this, but without creating a sectarian divide, because there in uh, Iraq and Syria, this is exactly what happened, even in Saudi Arabia. So much hate was taught to the people that eventually now you see people bombing masjids in Pakistan, the same thing, bombing, murdering children, murdering uh, women, because they believe uh, there is uh, there is no sanctity, you know, for Shia or whoever else. So we have to be very, very um, careful of that. And uh, we've got to be careful also, you know, not to import solutions from outside. You know, uh, right now in, in the Middle East, there are many... Uh, anti-Shia campaigns, but most of them are very violent and very sectarian. They are the basis of what ISIS is doing. We cannot import those solutions to South Africa, because if you're going to bring those viruses in South Africa, then get ready for the monster called ISIS to be here as well. You can't bring the virus and not have the disease. So uh, some groups will tell you we don't preach violence, but uh, the thing is, if you preach hate against a certain group, hate will definitely lead to violence. So uh, we have to be very careful and balanced. But as I said, I cannot comment on the ADL as such as the organization. They have to speak for themselves. But I, I comment on a general state of affairs, uh, which I notice in the anti-Shia campaign throughout South Africa, which I feel uh, has become very extreme. And I've got evidences to prove that. If you just tuned in, it's The ISIS Files, Imagining the Islamic State,
0: the fifth and final in our special series on Voice of the Cape. Our special guest, Sheikh Farhuddin Owasi. Time for a quick break. Back off. The ISIS Files, Files. Imagining the Islamic State, a special Voice of the Cape production. production. Welcome back to The ISIS Files, Imagining the Islamic State. The fifth and final in our special series on Voice of the Cape, during which we answer questions that you sent by SMS in the previous programs. Our special guest is Sheikh Fakhreddin Owaisi from the Sunni Olima Council of South Africa, also a lecturer at IPSA and the Medina Institute. Sheikh, let's have a look at uh, some of the other SMSs that came through. Some of these are more Akida related, but let's get through them as quickly as possible um the first question here it says salam sheikh did the sahaba uh celebrate maulud Isra in, in Miraj and nis shaban every year okay
1: uh well, i don't see the connection of that to isis i, I
0: struggle to see it but maybe you, you can just quickly answer
1: <laughs> it yes uh well the sahaba radiallahu hanum had uh, did not need to celebrate uh, maulid and nabi they they uh, they were there with rasulullah every day every day with a Molid. What is the mawlidun nabi? When we come together to remember our nabi and praise our nabi and talk about, talk about our nabi and imagine our nabi, you know, to be spiritually present with our nabi. That's a mawlud, right? And we don't do it on one night, only we do it throughout the year. There are is taking place. The Sahaba, every day of their life was a mawlud because every day they used to sit in the company of our nabi alayhi salatu wasalam and, uh, you know, praise him and, and enjoy his company. And the same thing with the Isra and the mi'raj. Why do we commemorate Isra and the mi'raj? Uh, we commemorate to remind the Ummah of this event which is of so much importance to us that Allah names two surahs of the Qur'an after it. So it's a reminder and Allah says in the, in the Qur'an, zikra tan mu'minin." Remind the believers because reminders are good for the believers. The dhikra the means, you know, the, the event that took place that we remember. So... uh the Sahaba عنهم, did not need a reminder of the Isra and the Mi'raj because they witnessed the Isra and the Mi'raj. It happened while they were there. And surahs of the Quran were revealed about the Isra and the Mi'raj while they were there. The Nabi was there with them. That was their Isra and Mi'raj. But today, the Ummah, I mean, uh, imagine if we did not uh, commemorate Isra and Mi'raj, for example, and remind the Ummah of it, most of our people today would not even know what is Isra and the Mi'raj. So it serves a purpose in reminding the Ummah. As far as Nisf al is concerned, there are hadiths that speak about uh, du'as being accepted on that night and it being a holy night. Some ulama say that those hadiths are weak, some say that they are not weak. Uh, there are ulama who wrote some good books on that like Sayyid Muhammad Alawi Maliki, Sheikh Muhammad bin Yahya al Sheikh Sayyid Abdullah bin Siddiq Al-Gumari, even Al-Hafiz Ibn Rajab who was the student of Ibn Taymiyyah. He wrote a book called Al-Ta'if Al-Ma'arif. And he was a Hanbali, who was a student of Ibn Taymiyyah. And in that book, he also concluded that definitely there is some holiness to the night of Nisfu Shaban. Now, I'm not saying you have to come together in the masjid and read Yasin three times uh, on the Nisf Shaban. If you don't want to do that, don't do that. No problem. But uh, you can stay at home and make dua as well. You can stay at home and read some Qur'an or extra salah as well. But the essence of the night uh, is there in the hadith of the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. End of the day, these things are not big deals. Uh, whether you make maulud or you don't make maulud, we love you all as Muslims. Uh, if you make maulud, you're not committing a sin. Uh, if you don't make maulud also, you're not committing a sin. So let us not, you know, make, blow these issues out of proportion and fight with other Muslims on the basis of these uh, minor issues. Yeah,
0: the, the next question says here, with regards to ISIS, what was the foreign policy of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman and Ali? You an?
1: should first look at what was the internal policy of the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Khulafa rashidin um, We see that the Nabi Sallallahu when he came into Medina, he immediately accommodated the Jews of Medina as part of his state. He gave them full rights of worship, for business for traveling, and he told them that no Muslim has the right to abuse you in your deen or abuse your synagogues, and that you will be equal in front of the law. And he didn't even charge them jizya or anything like that. The Muslims, uh, the Jews of, of Medina, he had an agreement with them. So uh, what we see with ISIS now, I mean, is the opposite, you know. Um, you, know you, you find them abusing the Christian population and the non-Muslim population and all the minority populations that are under them. Uh, As far as the uh, the foreign policy of our Nabi Sallam, we can look at it at the Sulh Hudaybiyah, where the Nabi Sallam's policy was always to avoid war. Whenever any group—I mean, I can give you many examples—whenever any group of kuffar came to make peace or have a treaty or try to avoid battle by having some type of arrangement, he agreed to it wholeheartedly. Even when some of the Sahaba were against him, they felt like, no, we should still go and fight them. Uh, you know, it's, it's only a trick, but the Nabi would accept uh, to make peace. So, the, the basic foreign policy of the Sahaba was that uh, we only fight those who fight us. And if nobody is fighting us, then we want peace with everybody and we want uh, the deen of Islam to spread peacefully. And subhanAllah, when the Nabi made the peace treaty with the Kuffar of Makkah, the Sulh al Hudaybiyah, in the three years after that, in fact not even three years two years after that more people entered into islam throughout arabia than the entire 20 years before that so as you can see the the period of peace is always the period in which islam flourishes and spreads not the period of war Sheikh, here's another question um it's quite a quite a sort of a
0: short one the person says does sharia condone chopping off of heads
1: Look, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, Sharia does uh, have a capital punishment in, in it. You know, in Islam, we do have execution uh, for somebody who murders another person uh, intentionally. And if the heirs of that person don't want blood money in return, uh, they have the option of saying, we don't want you to kill our father's killer. We just want him to pay us out. That is their blood money. Or they can even forgive him. Maybe the father was killed by his own brother. The uncle in some fight so the children you know have the right the nephews have the right to say okay we just forgive our uncle you know who we never do it again so yeah so in Islam there is execution for uh, I mean for a murderer and so on so certain people in Islam do get executed yes so and execution is found in every country in the world I mean United States everywhere we have something called execution uh, the method of execution of course may differ the method of execution in the time of the nabi sallallahu was was beheading because that was uh, the main method at that time uh, does that method still apply today i mean that's just a question ulama can talk about you know uh, in the time of the nabi sallallahu there there wasn't electrical chairs there weren't guns they, they weren't uh, pills whatever so uh, that is there so Yes, so beheading, you know, a, a criminal who deserves to be killed, you know, not as anybody, is there in Islam in the sense that it was done in the Prophet ﷺ's time. But uh, our problem with ISIS is that, firstly, that they are doing this uh, with all kinds of people who they disagree with. So basically, anybody who they feel doesn't support them, they just call him a kafir and they behead him. Uh, secondly, uh, when it comes to the capital punishments of Islam, which are called hudud, uh, they are not to be applied in a situation of fitna. In other words, where there is anarchy and fighting going on and rebel, you cannot apply these type of punishments. Thirdly, when there is poverty in the land, also you cannot apply that. The Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, in Sayyidina Umar's time actually, there was a drought. Uh, in the drought, uh, there was no food, basically. So one man was caught stealing. So the Sahaba then said, I mean, uh, is this man's hand going to be cut off? So Sayyidina Umar said no. He withhold the punishment, he withheld the punishment, because he said people are in a drought, there's nothing to eat, so we can't cut the a criminal a thief's hand off right now because there's nothing to eat. So in that same manner, uh, you know, we uh, right now in the Iraq and Syrian context, there is mass poverty. There's no food. I mean, the refugees are living in terrible conditions. In a situation like that, you don't have a right to go on cutting people's heads and hands and so on. Uh, so this is something very limited, and uh, unfortunately, it's very sad that for ISIS Sharia is only about reviving ancient methods of uh, beheading and so on, while the, the true Sharia is, is to bring the justice that the Nabi SAW had, to, to, you know, to, to help the people out there and remove misery from them rather than bring more misery to them. You're
0: listening to the ISIS files, imagining the Islamic State, the fifth and final in a special Voice of the Cape series. We are currently answering the SMSs that you sent to us during the course of the programs. Our special guest is Sheikh Fakhruddin Owaisi. Taking a quick break, back after this.
1: Bollywood Cafe, the new Eastern cuisine in town. So spice up your life at Bollywood Cafe and choose from a wide, tantalizing selection of our Indian cuisine, Southeast Asia, our fast foods, our breakfast, pizza, our turkey corner, our Daisy Bites, our sizzlers, and much, much more. Bollywood Cafe, 217 Long Street, Cape Town. Call out the one for two eight. We open from 7 a.m. to 3 a.m. daily. Bollywood Cafe, eat in Bollywood style. It's time once again to make a difference. Pick and Pay invites you to help us help the needy this Ramadan. Once again, Pick and Pay will assist hundreds of families with food over this period. If you know of anyone in need of support, write a short motivational letter and let us know. Either drop it in the nomination box at any Pick and Pay store or email mad at pnp.co.za. Make sure you include all contact details so we can reach the beneficiaries. Pick and Pay is a company that cares deeply about the community it serves. And we look forward to you helping us help hundreds of families in our Make a Difference initiative during the holy month of Ramadan. From all of us at Pick and Pay, we wish our Muslim customers and their families well over the fast and Ramadan Kareem.
0: The ISIS Files. Files. Imagining the Islamic State. A special Voice of the Cape production. production. Welcome back to the final segment of this the fifth and final in our series the Isis files imagining the Islamic state. Our special guest answering the questions that you send to us in the form of SMSs during the programs Sheikh Fakhreddin Owaisi from the Sunni Ulama Council of South Africa from the Medina Institute and also Ipsa uh, the International Peace College of South Africa. Sheikh Here's another question. The person says, Sheikh, I don't know so much about deen. So how do I answer someone who tells me to join ISIS?
1: Well, by going and learning about the deen, you know, so if you don't know about the deen, what you should do is go to the ulama in your area, in your town, the respected ulama and uh, recognize the ulama and then learn the deen. You know, you have no right, uh, somebody tells you to join ISIS. Basically, they're saying, they're asking a person who doesn't know anything of the deen to go leave his country, leave his family, and travel to another country to be part of a political conflict where you're going to kill people. So you've got to ask yourself, am I ready to go murder people? Do you know that murdering another human being is among the worst sins that a man can commit? It is, so uh, the Nabi says, I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala quotes, in the Quran, the words of Habil to Qabil, Qabil was the first person to murder. He wanted to murder his brother, Habil. And in... So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala quotes Sayyidina uh, Habil alayhi salam, the son of Nabi Adam alayhi salam saying, brother, Qabil. The two brothers fought and Qabil wanted to kill Habil. So Habil says to Qabil, if you stretch your hand to kill me, I will not stretch my hand to kill you. Because because I fear Allah This story is quoted in the Quran The attitude of the murderer And the attitude of the victim the, 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 So they, basically you find the Qabil attitude And the Habil attitude The Qabil attitude is If I don't like you, I disagree with you I'm going to kill you That is the deen of Qabil Then there is the deen of Habil Who says to so Qabil "O Qabil, even if you stretch your hand to kill me I will not stretch my hand to kill you Because I fear the Lord of this world Allah quotes this in the Quran. Why does he quote this story? Is it a fairy tale? Is it for fun? It's to teach us something. So, and, and, and you know what's the proof? That not only, besides the fact that it's in the Quran, the Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam told us in a hadith that they asked him, Ya Rasool Allah, if we live in a time of fitna and people are killing each other, what do we do? He said, be like the better son of Adam alayhi sallam. He said, be like the better of his two sons, Habil and Qabil, be like the better one. Be like Habil. If somebody wants to come and kill you, tell him, brother, if you're going to kill me, but I'm not going to kill you because I fear Allah. So uh, ISIS are following the way of Qabil and we, inshallah, want to be on the way of Habil. Alayhi Salam.
0: Sheikh, another question here. It says, how dare you call the Taliban terrorists? <clears throat> uh,
1: well, I mean, the Taliban... Uh, I have many Afghani friends, you know, and I can confirm to you that the Taliban are killing many innocent people. I'm going to ask whoever says that, I want to give you one example. Burhanuddin Rabbani was one of the leaders of the Mujahideen against the the Russian occupation, right? He was a maulana, sheikh with a big turban, big beard. He was one of the leaders of the jihad against the Russian occupation of Afghanistan. He obviously disagreed with Taliban. So the Taliban told him that, look, we don't need to disagree, you know, we've been fighting for a while against each other, why don't we have some negotiations? He decided to be the middleman in the negotiation, Maulana Burhanuddin Rabbani. He said, okay, let's negotiate then, you know, why should we fight? There were two groups fighting Taliban versus the the, the Northern Alliance or whoever group. and Burhanuddin Rabbani, a Sunni Muslim Maulana Mujahid, he became the, he was, I think, president of Afghanistan at one stage as well, he became the middleman, because he's a scholar, uh, and, you know, everybody respects him. So the Taliban delegation came to see him. When the Taliban delegation came to see him, they had hidden a bomb under their cloaks. So the moment they shook hands with him, they said, Assalamu Alaikum, which basically means, ironically, peace be upon to you, they detonated the bomb, and they blew him to pieces, killing themselves in the process. So if this is not terrorism, then only Allah knows what is terrorism, you know. They also did the same thing with that girl Malala, uh, where they nearly killed her. You know, this is a 12-year-old girl. 30, whether you like her or you don't like her, whatever, but you have no right to, to shoot and kill a girl. And they, they are, if you just follow the newspapers, you will see that they are committing a lot of crimes against innocent people. What they also did was that when Burhanuddin Rabbani's, um, I think seven days or whatever was taking place, the 40 days, Khatam, you know, uh, in the masjid, where the family comes together to read Quran and so on and dua for him, they had somebody detonate a bomb in the masjid. So uh, if you can go on Google, you, you can just write about uh, crimes of the Taliban, and you will see a li- long list of crimes that these people have been committing against humanity. So uh, definitely they are terrorists, without a doubt. And, um, and it's sad. Yes, I'm sad that a, a group that claims to follow Islam and they are Muslims are doing this, but we cannot keep quiet on the haqq. وَلَوْ عَلَىٰ fusikum. Allah says in the Quran, I want the Muslims to be witnesses to, to, to the truth. Even if it is against themselves it is no use we condemn the human rights abuses of the israelis and whoever else But we keep quiet about human rights abuses being done in the name of islam by uh, groups like the taliban and uh, other groups as well sheik we've only got uh,
0: time just for for one more question and of course shukran uh, to you the listener for sending us So many questions in the special series on Isis. Uh, This question says, Salam, I always wonder how people like the Khawarij and other groups, etc., interpret the Hadith. Is their interpretation made to suit themselves?
1: Yes, any group that went astray in Islam went astray by misinterpreting Quran and Sunnah. All groups follow Quran and Sunnah. If you ask any group, whether it is a Sunni or a Shia or a Salafi or whoever, all of them, even Al-Qaeda and Isis, they will all tell you, that we follow Quran and Sunnah because that's what makes you a Muslim right la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah but the problem is in the wrong interpretation of the Quran and Sunnah that's why it's so important that you have to have a proper understanding of the Quran and Sunnah proper interpretation from reliable ulama okay so that's why I always advise listeners to listen to different points of view and be open-minded you know don't lock up your mind and uh, just blindly follow somebody, whatever they say is what the Quran says. No, whatever this Sheikh or Maulana is saying is his interpretation of the Quran and the Sunnah. Okay, so you can listen to other interpretations as well. And then as a person you can decide what makes the most sense and what is more uh, in going you know, with the, the spirit of Islam. So one of the manners in which groups like ISIS wrongly interpret the Quran and Sunnah is what they do is they take ayat out of context. Mm-hmm. So I was listening to an ISIS clip uh, on WhatsApp in which some young guy, you know, uh, he's quoting an ayah of the Quran where Allah says, and fight the Jews and the Christians, uh, or they can never be your friends. Now, this ayah was revealed about uh, a certain group of the kuffar who were fighting Islam at the time of the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and Allah is telling the Nabi sallam, you can go and fight them. And the fact that he's telling him you can go and fight them shows that the rule is you don't fight people. But with this particular group you can fight them. And it is this group about which Allah is saying, don't be friends with them. But about other groups, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also said in the same Quran, <laughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I do not stop you from being good to those people, those of the kuffar, who have not fought you in your deen, and who have not thrown you out of your homes. I don't stop you from being good to them. Meaning, it's human nature to be good to them. That's why Allah said, I don't stop you from being good to them. Allah knows that you want to be good to them. Allah said, I don't stop you from being good to them. And to treat them in the best of manners. And to be just and fair with them, because Allah loves just and fair people. So what they do is, they take out ayat out of context. They'll take a hadith, which talks about a certain group of kuffar in the Prophet wasallam's time uh, uh, who are punished for a particular reason, and then they will take that hadith and start applying it to everybody they don't agree with. So we have to be very, very careful. Uh, in the time of the Nabi wasallam, also, uh, he always, you know, when it came to hudud, he said, Idra'ul always avoid capital punishment if there is any doubt. If there is any doubt in the matter, you don't apply capital punishment. Uh, there is an, a beautiful story where uh, one group of people, uh, you know, they were all captured by the Muslims as prisoners. And the daughter of their chief was brought to the Nabi Sallallahu The chief was killed by that time in the battle. So the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi married her. So when he married her, the Muslims, they all said, oh, these people are all these prisoners are now in-laws of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So they freed all of them. So on many occasions, the Nabi Sallallahu would often forego his own right to punish anybody for the sake of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and uh, let a lot of criminals go free just for the sake of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So, um, because the rule in Islam is mercy. The rule is mercy. Islam, you know, is not waiting to punish people. Uh, it, it's mercy. So we have to be careful. Any explanation of Quran and Sunnah that is not based on mercy, uh, you should be very, uh, you know, uh, doubtful about it. And a special thanks to
0: Sheikh Fakhruddin Owaisi from the Sunni Ulama Council of South Africa, also lectures at IPSA and the Medina Institute. Uh, this has been the fifth and final in our series, The ISIS Files, Imagining the Islamic State. That's all we've got. We've managed to go through as many questions as we can, SMSs that you send to us during the course of the programs. A special thanks as well to Omar Shokut from the Afro Middle East Center, also one of our guests, and Sheikh Irsan Talib from the MJC and from IPSA as well, also a special guest. Special thanks as well to Faseekh Peterson for the sounds and to Tazneeb Adams for all the production. From myself, Shafiq Morton from the ISIS files, imagining the Islamic State for the last time, Assalamu alaikum wa and thanks for listening. You have been listening to the ISIS files. Imagining the Islamic State. A special Voice of the Cape production.